Vibrations Podcast, Part 31, Adrian Brown. Hi, I'm Gary Brightman, and this is my bi-weekly podcast called Vibrations. Established in 2018, Vibe is a book and music shop situated in Moi Wo on Lantau Island in Hong Kong. So what's been happening at the shop over the past couple of weeks? We're now into our eighth week of Mirror Mania at Vibe. No, it hasn't abated. I even suspect that there are organised group tours coming here now, with about 15 kids under 10 years old, all wearing rucksacks and behaving very well. You're welcome. Given the ongoing travel restrictions, it's been refreshing to meet many Hong Kongers coming over to Lantau for staycations for the first time. At the same time, it feels like half the expats leaving here have either left for the summer holidays now or gone for good. Either way, life goes on here and vibe will remain. I've always had a fascination and love of neon. Subconsciously, that may be one reason for loving Hong Kong. Although it's been reducing on our streets far too quickly over the past 20 odd years. From setting up Vibe three and a half years ago, I really wanted to have a neon sign for the shop, but couldn't find an artisan with the skills. As neon's died down, it's been replaced by the eco-friendlier LED lights, which are the next best thing. And so, a few weeks ago, I designed a Live at Vibe sign and went up to my favourite shopping place in Hong Kong, Sham Shui Po. Needless to say, and in true Hong Kong service style I found someone to do it very cost effectively and in double quick time. I'll add a video onto our YouTube channel, at Live at Vibe HK. As well as local authors and artisans, we like to promote local musicians and singers. So if you fancy performing a tiny desk gig at the shop one Saturday, or know someone who may do, then please contact me directly. And so to this week's interview. With over 40 years in the industry, Adrian Brown is considered one of the industry's most experienced Asia correspondents. He has reported extensively on topics ranging from war, revolution and political turmoil, to natural disasters, to economic shifts and its social consequences, among many others. While he has reported globally, his area of expertise is Asia, its people, politics, economies and development via the Seven Network Australia, SBS Australia and most recently Al Jazeera English Channel and Sky News Australia, Adrian has covered many of the defining moments in recent Asia history. Some Asian story examples include the 1988 election of Benazir Bhutto and her assassination 20 years later, as well as the 1989 student protests in Beijing the transition to democracy in Indonesia, Cambodia and East Timor, as well as its restoration in the Philippines. Internationally, Adrian has also reported on key stories such as the 2005 London bombings, the Olympic Games in Greece, the Bali bombings, the Asian tsunami and its aftermath, the 1991 Gulf War, the 2005 Iraqi elections, the assassination of Rajiv Gandhi, the Kobe earthquake, the 2006 Israeli Hezbollah conflict, the funeral of Yasser Arafat, and the 1996 presidential elections in Taiwan, winning multiple awards over the years. One of his commendations comes from the 14th Annual Human Rights Press Awards in Hong Kong for his 2009 story, Kidnapped, about child trafficking in China. So we're here today with Adrian Brown at his flat and we're staring at the South China Sea outside of his lounge window. Welcome, Adrian. It's a great view, isn't it? It is. It's fabulous, yeah. 
Actually, it feels weird me saying welcome to you in your own flat. But welcome to your flat, Adrian. Thank you. You're, you're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for welcoming me. <laughs> As we do, we're going to start with 10 questions. Um, first question, favourite book or author? Eric Ambler. Any particular... Well, I think Eric Ambler was a writer who inspired people like Graham Greene, John le Carre. They've all drunk from his well. He wrote about espionage in the pre-war years, and he really sort of captured the mood at that time. Yeah. His books had wonderful plots, uh, not a word wasted, yeah. and, you know, a 230 pages. You know, yeah. a similar book today would probably run to 500 pages. So a yeah. wonderful economy of words but also a great storyteller. Okay, uh, question number two. Favourite musical artist? David Bowie. Brilliant, okay. Uh, I was about 13, 14 years old in 1971 when I bought Hunky Dory. Oh. Uh, I bought uh, Transformer by Lou Reed about the same time and I remember hearing Hunky Dory for the first time and just being blown away by it Yeah. and thought I have to get this album and it was, I think the first album I bought or it may have been Space Odyssey by David Bowie but certainly yes. I bought that The Man Who Sold the World and Hunky Dory and Ziggy Stardust all about the same time so David yeah. Bowie was the first artist who, who grabbed my imagination yes yeah yeah as he did a lot of people of my age you know, yeah mine too yeah absolutely mine too I had spiked peroxide hair for a while I had uh high heel boots, uh, platform boots that I sprayed Kelly Green, I sprayed them gold, I sprayed them silver, Excellent. I sprayed them ruby. Excellent. Because that's what you did in those glam rock, wasn't it? I was as, I was as androgynous as you, could, as you could be in stains. <laughs> Excellent. Love it. Wow. Do you have a preferred drink? Well, I, the thing is, I like, I like a lot of drinks, but if I have one particular drink, if someone says, we're going out tonight, what would you like to drink? It's yeah. a special occasion. It'll be a vodka martini. Okay. With olives. Kind of goes with your uh, profession a bit, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, perhaps, uh, perhaps, but it's a, it's, a classic, yeah, it's, nice. it's a classic cocktail. Yeah. And it never goes out of fashion, a bit like myself. Yeah, yeah nice, like it. All right, so um, do you have a life motto? Yes. Uh, it, it's a motto I've actually borrowed from an American, a guy called Lee Atwater, and he was a Republican Party strategist. And his motto was, lay low, act dumb, keep moving. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. And that always stuck with me. So yes. I, I, I borrowed someone else's motto, but it, it seems yeah. to work for me, yeah. certainly in the profession that I have. Do you have a favourite Hong Kong walk? Yes. And it's a walk that I've really started to get to know during lockdown. Uh, my wife and I walk the catchwater. Yeah. And it's a walk that only people who really live on Lantau really yes. know about. I don't have a great back, mm. so it's flat. There's yeah. a little bit of an incline and a decline. Yes. It's a, it's a walk that um, we do almost every Sunday. Uh, we stop and have you know a sandwich and a cup of tea on the way. And it's just a walk that's very familiar. Yeah. It's very comforting. You know, it's a walk you can do in the middle of summer because you have shade, you have trees. Yes. And it's a walk that you can also do uh, in the winter when, it, when it's cooler. Yeah. And it would be exciting to see today because after the heavy rain that we've had yeah. during the past few days, there'll be, you know, that catch water will be a raging torrent. Will be, yeah, so exactly. So that's certainly my favourite walk. Yeah. Um, favourite Hong Kong restaurant? Uh, that's easy, Hooked. 
Okay. It's a fish and chip shop on Bonham Road, owned by a Kiwi. Best fish and chips in Asia. Really? New Zealand fish. It comes in every day. Wow. You get fresh teriyaki, blue-eyed cod, salmon. You get oysters. And it's just okay. a, little, a little cafe that does right. take out. You can eat in. Uh, they have, uh, you know, a few tables there. Yeah. And it's just the freshest fish. Okay, right. So that was... The reason for me designing these questions is so I can pick up tips. And that's probably one of the best tips I've just picked up. I gave you the wrong information. Yeah. It's Cane Road. All right. But it's called Hooked. Yeah. And I'm going to go and look for it. Hooked. Easy, an easy title to remember. Love a good fish and chip shop. And there isn't that many in Hong Kong, actually. There aren't. We used to go to one on the steps of Pottinger Street. Yeah. Um, run by some Indian guys, actually. And, and that... That finished up about six or seven years ago. His secret is his batter. It's very light, but mm. he also do a, he does crumbed fish as well. Faced with a python whilst walking up to the peak, what would you do? Well, being a journalist, I'd probably stop, if I could, to take yeah. a picture. And before, interview it. <laughs> not interview it. Yeah. I'd take a picture, or rather I'd shoot a little bit of a video. Yeah. And then I'd add it to the Muiwo Snake website that okay. I just joined. Yeah. And then I'd probably beat a hasty retreat. Yeah. Because deep down, I've got a big yellow streak on my yeah. back when it comes to snakes. What was the best advice you were ever given? Well, when I first went into business, because uh, about 30 years ago, I helped set up a, a TV production company here. And the bit of advice I was given was, you know, take a risk, but yeah. no one to cut your losses. Okay. Right, good. And that's always stayed with me because yeah. it was like a freelance agency. So yeah. we'd often go off to overseas countries, making our own investments, spending our own money. Yeah. But after a while, you had to realise that perhaps this story wasn't going to work out for us after all. Yeah. So you, you, you've, it's, it's important to take a risk when yeah. you're a freelance journalist, but also to realise when to cut your losses. When to start. Okay, totally agree. Yeah. Favourite area of Hong Kong? I think Saying Pun, because when I moved back to Hong Kong in 2009, that was where my wife had an office, and she kindly allowed me to rent space in her office. Yeah. And at lunchtime, I go wandering around the streets of Saying Pun, and to me, it was a neighbourhood just bursting with character. It, it was old Hong Kong. You know, there were no Starbucks, there were no Pacific Coffee, none of the big sort of Western brands. And yeah. I just sort of... It was a full old Hong Kong immersion, you know, steeped in, 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 in history. Yeah. Finish this sentence. I live in Hong Kong because... Because no day will ever be a dull one. Hong Kong seems to feed some sort of energy. It seems to charge you. I don't know whether you feel the same. Yeah, it, it reminds... There's only one other city in the world that does that to you, and it's New York. Yeah. But you're right, the streets are energised. Yeah. Uh, and... You know, it's a place, a city where, you know, anything is possible. Yeah. It's a city where you can remake yourself. It's a city where you can fail, dust yourself off and start again. And yeah. there aren't many places in the world where you can do that. In Hong Kong, you are allowed to fail. Yes. In many yes. other parts of the world, that's yeah. cause for shame. In Hong Kong, it's not. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. It's part of the business culture. We succeed, yes. we fail, but we yeah. can start again. Yeah. All right, so now we're going to move on and learn a little bit more about who is Adrian Brown. So, um, I wish I knew. Yeah, exactly. Could you give us just a little pricey of your sort of career to date? Well, I'll, I'll try and keep it as, as, as brief as I can because 
I've been doing what I do for a very long time, but I began in uh, independent local radio in Britain in 1977 in the northeast of England, in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, with a radio station called Metro Radio. I was 20 years old. I'd lied to get myself the job. I said I'd been to Oxford, but in those days there was no internet, so people couldn't really check. I didn't have a driving license. I was driving around in an expensive radio car with no driving license, <laughs> but I was that desperate to get a job. Now, of course, yes. I could well have ended up, you know, yeah. in jail, yeah, yeah, or certainly right with a criminal conviction. Yes. And when I look back now and I think of the incredible risks I yeah. took, I, I don't really recognize yeah. myself. I did eventually get my driving license. They never mm. found out about me only having five O-levels. Yeah. But it was a real uh, steep learning curve for me because right. this was the northeast of England. This was a tough part of the world. And it was a part of the world that was going through real industrial change at the time. And then, yeah. of course, in 1979, Margaret Thatcher became prime minister and basically yeah. shut down the north of England. Yes. Shipyards were closed coal mines followed yeah and what was really an industrial story became a very human story because yes. you were covering stories about whole communities that had been decimated and you know i'd grown up in the south of england mm. a londoner yeah southerner through and through yeah and there was a divide between north and south so i'm glad that i spent time living and working yes. in a part of the world that ordinarily I might not have gone to. Yeah, yeah. And then from there I, I drifted into television, not because I actually wanted a job in TV, I, I, I liked radio, and, yeah. uh, but I worked for the BBC and they let me go to London to work. After five years at uh, Metro Radio, I joined the BBC. Right. And I got a, an apprenticeship, a sort of holiday reliefs job in okay. London with the BBC for four months. Yeah. And I didn't want to go back. Yes. And they said, well, you have to go back. You can't stay in London. You have to go back to Newcastle. You'll be able to come back to London one day in three or four years. Well, I was 25 and said, yeah. no, I, I, I want to stay here. It's 1983. Yeah. London's a happening place. Yes. And so I resigned. And of course, right. in those days when you quit the yeah. BBC, it was like resigning your commission. Yes. I remember him saying, I'll never work for the BBC again. This was the head of personnel. So I didn't have a job. And a friend of mine worked for a, tele a television news agency called Viz News, which is now yeah. Reuters. And he said, they always need people who can string a few words together, except you've got to write words to pictures. Right. So I thought, well, I could do that. And it's like a sort of sub-editor, but a sub-editor for TV. Right. And so I got a job at this sort of strange you know, TV news agency. It was right out near Park Royal, next to the, okay. Guinness, next to the Guinness Brewery. Yes, yeah. To a place where we stank of beer. And I did that for nine months. But around about that time, breakfast television was starting in Britain. Yeah. And there was a station called TV AM. Yes. And that was on the ITV network. Yeah. Good Morning Britain, which of course is what it is today. Yeah. And at that stage, it was in terrible financial trouble. And people were walking around the building looking for the highest point to jump from. Right. So I thought, that's where I could get real TV experience. Even yeah. if the station lasts another couple of months, I'll yes. get some real experience rather than sitting yeah. in this box in Park Royal. So I applied and got a job as an overnight writer. But it was very risky because no one knew yeah. whether TVM was going to survive. 
And then it was taken over by Kerry Packer. That's right. Pumped money into it. And a, car- and a character called Roland Rat. And the rest yes. is all history. Yes. So, and I got my break as a sort of TV reporter on the night that uh, the then Princess of Wales went into labour and right. gave birth to Prince Harry in okay. September 1984. <laughs> and it was on the early hours of a Saturday morning, a skeleton yeah. team on, yeah. And the editor looked at me and said, you go and stand outside and do a live report. But TVM was still so broke at that stage, we couldn't yeah. afford to send a satellite link truck. Yeah. So they sent a dispatch rider to collect <laughs> the tape from the cameraman after I recorded my camera statement, my piece to camera. Excellent. And I did it yeah. incredibly in one take because I thought, well, what would I do if I was in radio? Yes. Pretend the camera's not there. Pretend that glass and metal's not there. Yeah. And just talking to the microphone and I did so I owe it all to Prince Harry actually <laughs> that's brilliant and Is then there... I got and then I got a job as a as a reporter and I owe another break to another royal which is Sarah yeah. Ferguson okay in about early 1986 the rumors were that she was going she was seeing Prince Andrew yes and they were going to get engaged and I thought how can I get a picture of her? Because my editor assigned me to this very, very important story. Who is Sarah Ferguson? What can we find out about her? And I ran my dad, because he was also a Fleet Street journalist. Okay. And knows a thing or two about how to handle yourself in a situation like this. He said, roses. He said, no woman will ever turn down roses. 50 yellow roses, he said, is my advice, old boy. Wow. So thanks, Dad. So I went off 50 pounds (laughs) worth of yellow roses. Yeah. Turned up at her house in Clapham. Yeah. Knocked on the door, she opened, wearing a 90. Oh, my God. And I said, she said, oh, they're lovely. I said, well, they're, they're for you. I just wanted to say congratulations on the engagement. I said, well, I can't say any more, Adrian, but I'll put these by my bed. Anyway, it was all caught on camera. And what? the next day, the, the Sun newspaper ran a headline that said, Fergie's secret admirer. And it was you. It was me. <laughs> Excellent. After that, they decided that they'd try me out as a presenter. Yes. Yeah. of Good Morning Britain. I was talk about green and wet behind the ears. Yeah. So there I was sitting on the very sofa where Piers Morgan was sitting until a yeah. few months ago. And it was a disaster. I, I had very little experience. I would always look at the wrong camera. I was twitchy. I was nervous. I had this awful start-stop delivery. And it was painful to watch. Yeah. And after about seven weeks, I went to the boss... And I said, I don't think this is working. And he was Australian. He said, yep. He said, I'm 60% right most of the time, fella. But you're in the 40%. So I became what you might call the George Lazenby of TVAM presenters. Like it, yeah. George Lazenby only did one Bond movie. Yeah. Which was terribly panned. Yeah. So I was the, the, the George <laughs> Lazenby of breakfast TV That's presenters. Nice. But it was a good experience. You yeah. Know, uh, but a terrifying experience. I've kept all the clippings from that time. Where yeah. I, was, I remember the News of the World made me their Wally of the Week two weeks running. <laughs> Praise indeed. And, there, and there was another headline in the Daily Mirror called Brown Gets Me Down and Don't Be a Lemon Aid. I've had it from the very best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, it seems, I mean, we're talking about events, what, 35, 35 years yes. ago. Yeah, uh, But... Um, yeah, I often smile to myself when I, when I look at today's Good Morning Britain, thinking, my goodness, what would have happened to me if I'd become a success? Yeah, exactly. Dancing with the stars, maybe. Well, absolutely. But, you know, yeah. I was lucky yeah. then because there was yeah. no Twitter. Yes. There was no Facebook. I mean, I yeah. can't imagine the sort of torrent of abuse yeah. I would have copped 
at that time. So I think I would have been a nervous wreck after the first week. The consolation prize Mm -hmm. was this network decided they wanted to get serious about covering news because they were going to bid for the Channel 5 network. So they decided to set up offices around the world. Moscow, Cyprus, Hong Kong Ah, and Washington. And I I put my hand up to go to America because I thought that's the place to be. Yeah, and it kind of was in those days, wasn't it, I think? And they said, no, you're going to go to Hong Kong. And I thought, Hong Kong? What on earth happens in Hong Kong? (laughs) I don't know Hong Kong. I don't know Asia. Yeah. So I sort of went along with this reluctantly. I arrived in July 1988 and immediately Mm. was just completely won over by the place. Right. I'd never seen such... I'd never heard such cacophony. I'd never seen this, you know, explosion of colour. And I was just blown away. So my wife and daughter followed. And Julia and I said, well, stay two years. And then we go back to London. Yeah, that's the standard, isn't it? It's the standard. Yeah. The station eventually folded in 1991. And I was acutely aware that the economy was not in a good shape back in Britain. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to stay. Yeah. And that's the point. Hong Kong was one of those places where you could do that. It was easy being a Brit, yes. coming into Hong Kong, yeah. get a visa straight away, stay forever. So we decided, the cameraman and I, I worked with, to yeah. set up our own little production company. Now, I think that would have been very hard to do in many other parts of the world, but you know, yeah. within a few days, we were a company that was a limited company. We were registered. Yes. You know, we were, we, we were, we were getting work yeah. because we were in the right place. The handover was coming. Yeah. Um, you know, China was bidding for the Olympics. Elections were going to happen in Cambodia. There was an awful lot going on yeah. in this part of the world. Elections in the Philippines after the downfall of the Marcos yeah. regime. So suddenly it was, it was right place, right time, yeah. but also right city because it's Hong Kong. Um, it strikes me, you know, just everything you've just gone through, you're pretty gutsy really aren't you you don't do the predictable you tend to you know your own mind well I have no I've had no career yeah path things have just happened I've been lucky yeah uh, but I never sort of at 21 said you know I want to be a producer by 25 a correspondent by 30 a presenter by 40 I never had that yeah I've just gone with the flow yeah yeah and I've been very lucky because you know very few of us get to do what we actually enjoy in this life I mean as a correspondent I've spent so much of my time covering people doing such miserable jobs yeah every single day and they're the brave people I I, I blow in and blow out of their lives yeah so there you are in 1993 you've set up a Mm. your own production company and you're getting with my with my partner mark erda with mark apv yeah which is still going okay so where do you go to from there well we um we started doing um a a lot of news work oddly enough for uh australia for channel nine okay that's because the guy who ran tvam went back to run channel nine and the australians at that time were very interested in news from Asia. Yeah. The Prime Minister of Australia was Paul Keating, who yeah. actively wanted to get more engaged with Asia. Yeah. So, you know, I found myself going to, you know, not just China, but to Indonesia, the Philippines, Thailand, yeah. Malaysia, Singapore, you know, and I became very quickly their sort of de facto yeah. Asia correspondent. And, you know, in that time, we covered some really you know, defining moments in recent Asian history. I'm thinking about the 
the, the first elections in Cambodia, supervised by the United Nations in 93. Right. The elections I mentioned, you know, in the Philippines in 92, after yes. the fall of the Marcoses. Yeah. Uh, you know, the first democratic elections in Indonesia after the, you know, yeah. toppling of Sahato, the elections in, Indo- in East Timor, which led to independence yeah. for East Timor, Benazir Bhutto becoming yeah. Prime Minister of Pakistan in 88, her assassination almost more than 20 years later, yeah, yeah. the election of yeah, Rajiv Gandhi, another South Asian dynasty story. So, yeah. you know, we were covering all these momentous events, including yeah. the tumultuous events in China in 1989. So I've yeah. been very lucky in what I've, I've covered. Yes. I've covered history. You know, thankfully, I can still remember most of it. Yes, yeah, exactly. I'm a broadcast buccaneer, and I was able to do what I did, mm. as I say, because of Hong Kong. Hong Kong yeah. accommodates like me. Back then, to be honest, to Hong Kong, it was a media centre. If you remember, in the yeah. early 90s, you had CNBC setting up, Asia yeah. Business News setting up, Star TV setting up, there yeah. was the Eastern Express, you know, there were new media organisations yes. being created all the time here. So we must remember that, you know, at that stage, Hong Kong was the media centre for Asia. Asia, Sadly, today, that's no longer the case. So let's go back to sort of mid-90s. You're running this... Helping run APV, yes. My my partner, Mark Erda, was the financial brains behind the company. He's the one that made sure that we were profitable. And, And we were. And we were getting to do some interesting projects at this stage. We did a a documentary series for the BBC called The Last Governor, which documented okay. Chris Patton in yeah. Hong Kong. You know, it's worth watching again now, actually. I'd like on, to see that, yeah. On YouTube, it's yeah. a... And you can find it. And because so much, of course, of what okay. he was involved in then is is entirely relevant now. Yes. Particularly yeah. the way he was, in the eyes of many, stabbed in the back by his own foreign office. So, okay. it, so in the mid '90s, yes, we are. APV is going full steam ahead. Uh, we're we're approaching, you know, the handover. Yeah. Uh, the handover comes and goes, and at that time, our, our company had more than f- we employed more than forty television crews for that event. Plus, we provided satellite right. dishes, so we were like yeah. the, the the go-to broadcaster yeah. for that important historic yeah. event, and. Uh, and of course, we're approaching the 25th anniversary of all of that. And I can hardly believe it was a quarter of a century ago. No, but 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 it was a period that 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 time was just laden with history because yeah. very few of us have lived through a transition where you're going from yeah. British rule to Communist Party rule. Yes, and we all thought at the time, what's going to happen? Should we move to Singapore? And I remember on the morning of July the first, walking back to my flat. Yeah, Ventress Road and seeing all the red Chinese flags hanging from hundreds of balconies thinking wow it's happened Yes. but two days later the flags have gone and it was like Hong Kong was winking at you saying it's alright we can get back to normal now (laughs) and to be honest nothing really changed because I think we were distracted by the uh, financial crisis that followed if you remember there was the Asian financial crisis yeah there was a crash wasn't there and you know the BART crashed the Rupiah crashed and of course those events led to the toppling of, of governments, yeah. like the one in Indonesia yeah. a year later. Yes. So, you know, through the 90s, we are covering the, the transformation, political and economic, yeah. of, of Asia. But in 2001, it was a reminder of 
old wars that don't go away. You know, yeah. I went to Afghanistan to cover, you know, the US-led effort to dislodge the Taliban. And now, 20 years later, the Americans who went charging into Afghanistan yeah. are charging out, and we are back to where we were 20 years ago. Yes, full With cycle. all the yeah. sad parallels of Vietnam and Cambodia. Yes. So let's pull it back to Hong Kong. So you're in Hong Kong it, around time of SARS 2003 or whatever. You get you head to Beijing at some point in time, don't you? You spent yeah, many I, years I, in Beijing. I, yeah, well, I, SARS is a is a is another sort of pivotal moment yes. in my life because yeah. after SARS, which was a difficult period, yeah, particularly for small businesses like the one I was involved in. Although we were busy because. TV crews weren't allowed to come to Hong Kong because it was yeah. effectively a diseased port. Yeah. So we were working for the likes of the BBC, Discovery, National Geographic, right. who all wanted their own documentaries on yeah. what it was like to be in Hong Kong at yeah. that time. When that ended, I got a call out of the blue offering me a job in Australia, and I thought, you know what? Yeah. Actually, after the last six months, <laughs> yeah. why not? Yeah, yeah. So I moved to Australia, to Sydney, at the beginning okay. of 2004, Right. For five years. And I think, if truth be told, within a few days of arriving, I think, yeah. I thought, I think I've made a mistake here. Okay. And within a few months, I suddenly missed the anarchy <laughs> of Asia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, Australia yeah. is lovely, but I found it, on some levels, a bit one-dimensional, a bit too suburban. I thought, what's not to like? There are barbecues, there are beaches. It's kind of perfect, isn't it? it yeah. Something was missing, and I yeah. think part of it was... I was a middle-aged pom. I should have gone there when I was 30. But there was I, middle-aged, and I think I just, it was, it was timing. I don't regret going yeah. because I, I love Sydney and I've got yeah. a lot of good friends in Sydney. I've got family there. But funnily enough, I have a better relationship now with Sydney than I didn't live there than yeah. I did when I did live there. Yes. So back to Hong Kong, so 2009. I came yeah. back to Hong Kong in okay. 2009. And it was just a joy to be back. Yeah, yeah. And by then, yeah. my wife had moved to Mui Wo, yeah. We went to the little flat Seaview yeah. Terrace above the little curry place in the oh, Filipino yes. shop. A tiny flat, but it was just joyful yeah, to be yeah. back. Yeah. And I just, I didn't care that we were living yeah. in a tiny flat. It yeah. was just wonderful to be back yeah. in Hong Kong and I just embraced it. And I was grateful that I was able to come back because I was yeah. still a permanent resident. Yes. And that's it. Hong Kong says, fine, you want to come back? Come. Yeah, yeah. And people would say, have you been away for a while? Yeah, Have you yeah. been on holiday? I said, no, I've been away for five years. Oh, yeah. but people don't really care. <laughs> because true. it's a transitory place. People come yeah, and go. they certainly do. They don't judge you whether you, yeah. whether you leave Hong Kong yeah. and then come back. In Australia, yeah. a lot of people thought, why are you yeah. leaving? Yeah. Why would you leave here? And I think they were a bit unhappy with me. Yeah. But in Hong Kong, people aren't. They're accepting. They accept it. Yeah, I agree with you. 2009 Hong Kong was still a good place to be. It, it was a wonderful place to be, and I, I set up a company within 10 minutes, you know, and yes. a private company. I opened a bank account, and I was, I, was, I was in one day, I was back in business, still working for the Australians, but for, yeah. on a retainer for, for two networks. Right. So it was perfect. So I was still going off to these weird places like Afghanistan, the Middle East, yeah. Africa, but then always returning yeah, yeah, to yeah. Moiwo. You get in the cab at the airport, that lovely taxi ride on the, the old Chong Road, on Mountain yeah. Road, back to Muiwo. Yes. And you'd think, it's wonderful. All I have yes. to think about is going for a walk tomorrow. 
walking to DB maybe. And it was just it was just a wonderful way to unwind after being in some stressful situations. Yeah, very stressful. So it was I, I really like that contrast yeah. of going off to these strange places but always returning to sleepy to old Moyo to yeah. recharge the batteries. Good on Julia for getting you into Moyo, really. I mean, it, I think we all end up here by Abs- a certain amount and, of and that, and that was down to Julia. We, wouldn't have, we might not have come here yeah. otherwise. Yeah. I mean, I remember when we lived in Hong Kong the first time around, we never came to Lantau. No. I mean, why would you? Well, exactly. It's the other the side same, of the water. For the same reason most Hong Kongers don't come here today, isn't it? And I was like, like that. Yeah. I t- you know, yeah. for me, you, you only went to Wan Chai, Causeway yeah. Bay and Central. I now, think, yeah. I very rarely go to Central. Ditto. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's now I mean, looking out the window right. now, I can see it. it yes. There is Hong Kong in the distance. It's like being in New Jersey, seeing Manhattan. You know, it's, yeah. it's there if you want it. But generally, during the weekend, I haven't... I, I'm not going to waste an hour going yeah. there back. You land back in 2009 in Moiwo. Um, what happens then? Well, I'm, as I say, back busy. I'm, I'm working for freelancing for two Australian networks who are keeping me very busy. You know, Asia hasn't got any less busy during that yeah. time. You know, I found myself in, in South Africa covering the yeah. death of Nelson Mandela. I was back in Afghanistan covering what Australian troops were doing there and how the effort to win hearts and minds was quite obviously going nowhere. Um, I was also going to the Middle East and because the networks I worked for didn't really have a presence in Asia or in the Middle East, I was the nearest person to the Middle East and Europe. So I found my time on planes an awful lot, going backwards and forwards. I mean, I haven't been on a plane for 18 months because of COVID, but I was probably on a plane six, seven, eight times a month, taking it all for granted. So I was yeah. very busy, I was traveling yeah. a lot, and I have to say, you know, enjoying it. Yes. I didn't mind traveling, but um, it was getting to the stage now that I was in my mid-50s, and I started to think, well, you know, it may be time to come off the merry-go-round, the Asian merry-go-round. And in 2013, I got a call out of the blue from Al Jazeera, who said, yeah. would you like to go to Beijing? Yeah. to be our correspondent. And after a while I thought, well, you know what? This might be, you know, my swan song. Yeah. I'll be based in one country rather than trying to cover 50. And it gets, gives me a chance to, to end my career the way I began it, which is a correspondent. So you yeah. go out on a bit of a high and being based in Beijing for a major le- network is prestigious. Yeah, and uh, it was a privilege, and I stayed for five years. Coming backwards and forwards, of course, to yeah. Hong Kong. Whenever I could find a story in Hong Kong, yeah. I'd come back. <laughs> yeah. So I came backwards and forwards a lot. Yeah. Of course, Julia was coming up to see me in Beijing, and I was coming back here to see her whenever I could. Yeah. Because really, it's only a hop and a skip away. Yeah. But I'm glad I did because I, I got mm. to see the world very much from the China point of view, especially when it came to Hong Kong. So in 2019, when I came back, I was able to see it from both sides, from the viewpoint of China and also the viewpoint of those in the street who were protesting. And I hope that enabled me to give a sort of a balanced balanced, picture. I think I might not not always have been factually correct, but I've always tried to be balanced. Yes. Hong Kong at that time, and even really up until the last couple of years, is still Hong Kong that we we knew and loved. And then you come back around 
2018. 2019, I 2019. came. 2019. June 2019. Smack bang. Bringing the, the three horsemen of the apocalypse with me. Yes, that's right. Actually, just going back, one question I have. So, 2014, hmm. you're in Beijing. Yeah. When we have the, the umbrella movement and, uh, and, and things then. And I came back to report on Occupy. Uh, okay, on Occupy Central. So, did you pick up on the, the vibe in Beijing, feelings of what's happening in Hong Kong, why are they doing this, what's motivating? Yes, and you know, in, in, in Beijing at the time, you have to remember that a lot of the images, what was happening in Hong Kong, was being yeah. controlled. The narrative yeah. was not really reaching ordinary people in China. They were seeing it in Shenzhen, okay. in Guangdong province, because you can receive yeah local TV there so they knew what was going on yeah and if you remember at the time there were still plenty of Chinese coming across the border into Hong Kong yeah to shop and also yeah. just to gawp yeah to look at what was going on yes yeah yeah because of course this was something that yeah. they would never see on their own streets yeah and yet this is supposed to be a Chinese city and the Chinese people always scratch their heads when it comes to Hong Kong they're not yeah. quite sure what its status is they say and I think most of them still think of it as actually being separate. Yes. But they're yes. confused because it's also a Chinese city. I, I remember doing interviews with people in Beijing mm. at the time, asking people in the streets, what do you think about the protests in Hong Kong? Yeah. And they were ambivalent. To, to them, it's like a British prime minister being concerned about a small protest in Swindon. Yeah. I, I think at the time, yeah. they, they thought this is not going to bring down yeah. China. I think the government was yeah. obviously alarmed yeah. and concerned yeah but at the same time it was peaceful but in the eyes of china's yeah. government when students gather on the streets that causes yeah. unease yeah. because they have bad memories of what students can do yeah and what it can times. lead to when yeah. students gather on the streets yeah so there, there's no doubt that it was a, a, a wake-up call but you know we can have without getting sort of too too political here. Yeah, yeah. I think that there was a wake-up call mm. in Beijing. They were concerned. Yeah. And I think it did raise and start to raise serious questions about what needed to be done to bring Hong Kong back into line longer yeah. term. Yeah. Because okay. remember, two years earlier, President yeah. Xi Jinping had taken yeah. over, and China was already starting to go in in a different direction. Yeah. And Hong Kong presented another reminder. That this is a Chinese city that has to, you know, yeah. live and abide by, you know, the diktats from Beijing. Yes. 2019, you come back to Hong Kong. A lot's changed by this time, and and we're living with, you know, some some of the the demonstrations or the start of the demonstrations. You're still working for Al Jazeera in that in in that time, but now you're transferred to back to Hong Kong. To Hong Kong contracts fully and that's where you've been sort of for the last two years really that, that's where I've been yes so yeah. I'm, I'm back here I'm sort of semi-retired still keeping my hand in but it's like that Godfather yeah. movie every time I want out they suck yeah. me back in yeah exactly all the Blues Brothers all the Blues Brothers so <laughs> I don't think yeah you ever really retire as a journalist because I still wake up in the morning and I'm interested yeah. in what's going on. Yes. The difference is I've spent so much of my mm. career covering events outside of Hong Kong. 
Yeah. But for the past two years, I've been covering events in my home city. Yeah. That's been hard. So it's lead, led me to feel conflicted sometimes because yes. I, I'm in the streets and I'm watching vandalism. I'm watching mm. windows being smashed. Yeah. And there's a side of me that's angry. There's a side of me that's yeah. sad. You know, I, it is not my city. I, I'm, I, I, I live here. But it's very hard coming back at the end of the day, you know, reporting on your home city yeah. tearing itself apart because yeah. it is your home yeah. you know and you know and we all live and breathed what was going on at the time yes wondering how does this end and none of us realizing that perhaps it was going to end the way that it quite did because yeah. there was worries that they were going to have tanks sent across i yeah. never thought that would happen yeah but in a way I always realise that there's going to be a price to be paid for At all some of this. Point. Yeah. At the end of the day, there will yeah. be a price to be paid. Yeah. And last June, you know, that price was 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 paid. Yeah. Yet, in spite of all that's happened, you know, I tell friends it's still a great city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it, yeah, it, it, you know in spite of yeah. Hong Kong, with. China's ever tightening controls. Yeah, it is still a good city. I mean, I can still, yeah. for now, access whatever news site yeah. I want to. Yeah, I can go and eat whatever food I want to eat in Hong Kong. Yes, yeah, I can still watch pretty much what I want to watch TV, on satellite TV, yeah, internet, Netflix, access, yeah. whatever. You know, that's not the case on yeah. the mainland. So there is yeah. still a difference. But I worry that the trend line yeah. might be towards greater control in the future. That that hasn't happened now. You know, I'm not seeing a mass exodus of people seeing. I'm seeing a few individuals going, yeah. particularly people with children. And I spent Monday morning at Hong yeah. Kong International Airport doing yeah. a story about some of the people who are leaving to go okay. to Britain because of the special visas okay. they've been offered. And it was very poignant because, you know, these are people who have a mixture of reasons and emotions is why they're yes. going and they feel a mixture of anger shame yeah. guilt and a sense they're being forced out and many of those going of course supported the protest movement or took part in the protest movement so there's no sympathy for them yeah from hong kong's government no and, and certainly they will not be seen as patriots no by by the chinese government i think a sense you want to go Go. Go, yeah. yeah. And guess what? There's an, right there's, 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 there's an inexhaustible supply of people Over across the border, the border who yeah. can do your jobs. But it was to yeah. me a very sad symbol. Yeah, I and yeah. I looked yeah. up and there above me was that famous banner saying, Hong Kong, Asia's world city. Yeah. And that's not a picture that says, yeah. this is Asia's world city. So we're in a difficult time. You know, and, and the paradox is this. Yes. Yeah there is unease about what is happening at the moment and yet the the, the split screen picture is of a stock market that's largely been going gangbusters yes of red capital pouring into hong kong yeah ipos bonanza still yeah uh, you know when i came here to hong kong there are a yeah. handful yeah. of chinese companies listed on the stock market yes now it's about 1200 yeah. i mean so yeah. you know it, that that shows you that for now this place does remain important to China as a place yeah. to, to, to raise money. Yeah. What I worry about is the future because yeah. people start talking. In, when I was in China, yeah. they talked about the GBA, not even the Greater Bay Area. The head newspapers say yeah. the GBA. Okay. And I worry, you know, one day soon, we will just be... Assimilated. Assimilated into the, the GBA. GBA. And we, this will yeah. be a very nice suburb. It'll be the premier suburb yeah. of 
yeah. the GBA. We are one of eight cities in the GBA. Yeah. Yeah. Now, there's no doubt yeah. that, that economically, yeah. that's the future. And, if, yeah. and for people who stay, that's your Eldorado. That is where yeah. your bright new future lies. Yeah. But it's not going to lie in, in the old Hong Kong. It's yeah. going to be a Hong Kong that is great if you're in finance, insurance, yeah. accounting but not really what what i do finance sectors yeah not, not, it's not necessarily a place for, yeah. for old hacks yeah yeah but that's you know yeah. i mean we eventually of course yeah you know i i i i, I will go because we've always had a plan to retire yes. to, to new zealand but yeah. hong kong it's like the Hotel California. You check out, but you never leave. Yeah, yeah. You, wherever you go in the world, yeah. if you've lived in Hong Kong for as long as I have, yeah. a bit of Hong Kong will always stay with you. I mean, I yeah. came here 33 years ago. Right, yeah. And while I haven't lived here continuously yeah. throughout, I've lived here for more than 22 years. Yeah. So that you're never, you're never going to lose. Yeah. No, no matter your political view, yeah. people, I mean, those people who were leaving yeah. Hong Kong on Monday... They love Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those people yeah. who are on the other side of the political divide also clearly love yes. Hong Kong. That's yeah. the one thing they have in common. Yeah. It's just a pity there could be no reconciliation. Yeah, some middle ground. And some, I think yeah. that's what you need. There yeah. has to be some form yeah. of reconciliation and yeah. an understanding as to why what happened in 2019 happened yeah. so that we can learn lessons from that. It just remains for me to say, Adrian Brown, thank you very much for talking to me today. Thank you for talking to me. I've enjoyed it very much. It's strange to be the one who's being interviewed, but I enjoyed it. You can listen to all our Vibrations podcasts published on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Amazon Music, TuneIn and Alexa, Stitcher, Listen Notes, Player FM, SoundCloud and a few others. Or you can watch on our YouTube channel under Live at Vibe HK. Or follow the links from our website at vibehk.com. Our next podcast will feature an interview with Shirley Johnson of Tong Fooker fame. The opening and closing music is from my good mate in Tong Fook on Lantau Island, Peter Millwood. It's called Green Island Dub by Celestial and is on the Retrospect vinyl album. On sale at Vibe! Finally, a reminder that Vibe is open seven days a week, every day of the year from 12 noon until approximately 6.30pm. Well, that's it for another week. Thanks for listening to the 31st Vibe Book and Music Shop podcast called Vibrations. I'm Gary Brightman. You get my vibe? Can you imagine what this old island must have looked like to those Dutch sailors when they first saw it? A dream of a new world. They must have held their breath. Afraid it would disappear before they could touch it.